So this week's interview is with Jen Su. Jen is a global citizen, polyglot, and multi-talented celebrity. As a TV radio presenter, actress, corporate master of ceremonies, singer, author, and voiceover artist. She is best known as a television news anchor for Business Day TV and Sky News, the African Business News in Johannesburg, South Africa. Jen is also a writer for the SA Sunday Times, covering red carpet events around the globe. In addition, Jen is author of the book, From Z to A-Lister, Building Your Personal Brand. We discuss Jen's profound personal journey, her life's work as someone who rose to become an A-Lister on red carpets around the world, personal branding, and a whole lot more. You'll find all the show notes on minterdial.com. Please do consider the drop in your rating and review, and don't forget to subscribe to catch all the future episodes. Now for the show with Jen. Jen Sue, wow, um, what a pleasure to have you on my show. You and I met thanks to your husband, my longtime great friend, Del Levin. And uh, we met and we talked and it, it seemed like we could have talked for hours. And so we took up the idea of carrying on the talk in public. You have, uh, uh, to your credit, an enormous list of talents uh, from singing to acting television cast, newscaster, and modeling, and gosh knows what else. Jen, in your own words, how would you like to describe yourself? Wow. Well, first of all, thank you so much, Minter, for having me on your podcast. I'm very, very honored. And I guess in just a few words, I am, have been in the television business as a presenter, singer, professional uh, writer as well with a new book out called From Z to A Lister, How to Build Your Personal Brand, talking about personal branding. But I actually wanna chat more to you about your tips for personal branding as well. Well, we're gonna get into that by gum. Um, I wanna start off with a maybe a, a factoid from your book, uh, which I didn't know about you before, photographic memory. When did you discover that you had a photographic memory? Is that something you can actually improve on, hone, or get? Wow. Well, a photographic memory, I guess I was blessed with my father, um, who was very uh, traditionally Chinese. He's from Shanghai. Um, and he basically taught me how to read sort of, we would have these exercises, so to say, in these Chinese comic books. And they were special eye exercises. So you would read the comic and then he'd say, okay, you have to show, there's these two photos, tell me what's different, you know, in the one photo than the other. And just little things like that, that would train your eye. And so I just did that literally every day with him. And I learned how to be more observant. So I'm just one of those people that notices everything, almost to the point of being OCD. <laughs> wow! <laughs> I love the sound effects. <laughs> yes, yeah, see. Um, well, there, that's something interesting about the the way that the the, the countries that have um, ideograms, Chinese, Japanese in particular, they, they have a very different way of reading. And uh, I was always told, that both these cultures, when you look at a picture, you look at it in its context, in its entirety. 
much less about the detail of maybe the, the white chair and the right, but the ability to understand it in its bigger context. And that was something that I was, I was always, um, you know, mystified by. And certainly when I started studying Japanese, I, I was trying to channel my Asian-ness, of course, that's far from me. Right. Especially the kanji. So you're right, the kanji in Japanese is like our Chinese characters. And you're right. I think that um, being, you know, from a young age, reading those pictograms definitely helped a lot, learning to be more observant. But I mean, Western, you know, society also, a lot of people have very sharp photographic memories. Um, I do think that um, spending a lot of time outside, music, you know, going through, and uh, my, my parents took me to art galleries to really look carefully and spend time looking and observing uh, definitely had a big impact on my photographic memory. But it's very interesting. I think you're actually the first person that I've chatted to who has actually brought up my photographic memory to begin with. Well, maybe uh, but maybe it's because I'm, I'm jealous. Yeah. No, but you do too. You're very artistic and you're very observant. And you know, with the film that you did, all of those things and a book, you have to be very observant of everything. And you know, if you're in film and television production, you notice everything, not only the subject, but all of what's going on behind, you know, in the background. And I think, you know, just paying a lot of attention to those things. When I used to act and film, you know, you always have to uh, note exactly what you're wearing from head to toe, the exact same earrings, the exact same shirt. If there was a little stain on the shirt, the stain still has to be there. So all of those little details, you know, the more that you uh, work in this kind of industry, the more that you just have to be attuned to a lot of details and that helps to make your photographic memory more sharp. Mm, so it is something you can practice. When I, in my past, I, in various countries, I, I, I'm in the tube or the subway or, or metro or whatever and I, I i see people sometimes reading books god forbid but i also see people sometimes musicians who are reading scores i i just i i just find that just so sexy fascinating and i know that from reading your book uh from z to a list um you are you have memorized so many things that you've written are you someone who also is classically trained and, and can read scores and just do it in your mind as well. And what, what does that bring to you in your life, if you do? So I studied piano from when I was seven. Uh, actually, I started Suzuki violin at five. So from early on, we learned how to read music um, and it became something that was very natural to me. I also was lucky during the time I was in high school, I went to a music school. So I trained in theory, um, musicianship, as they would say, sight reading, and uh, learning how to sing as well as playing piano. So I think all of that, you know, contributed to learning how to read musical scores. Um, having said that, my son right now is actually auditioning for state uh, band on the saxophone and I had to transpose everything to his key which is B flat and that was so difficult I hate transposing <laughs> so well, I found that you... to be actually quite challenging well good to have um, uh, still some challenges right 
Oh, yes. Oh, definitely. I mean, if somebody threw a huge musical score in front of me, it's not like I could just sit down and, and start playing a whole Rachmaninoff third concerto again. I mean, <laughs> I have to I have to really break it apart and, you know, go just methodically measure by measure. I'd have to spend a lot of time doing it. It's not like, you know, um, it's nice to these days. You can actually put the music into an app. And then it can actually play it for you and break it down, <laughs> which sometimes is nice when you're pressed for time. But um, I do enjoy actually going through and learning music, um, going through musical scores. Uh, I used to play a lot of chamber music when I was younger. And so music's always been a creative outlet for me. And it still is. And um, I, I assume you, you're still seeing the song of the Jasmine Flower. I am. Do you want to hear a little bit of it? Surely. Do it. Wow. <laughs> I sang that at my father's funeral. I was like, uh, in high school at the time. And when I stand up in front of an audience, normally I'm very, very shy actually in person, if you can believe it. But I stood up and I just belted that out without a microphone or anything as a little kid and everybody was really stunned. Um, well, it's a beautiful song. Thank you. It is. I hadn't sung, I don't think I've actually sang that for a long, long time since my father's funeral. So um, that's been a long time. I'm over. And that for sure is the first time I've had anybody sing something on my podcast. So a bunch of firsts. Oh, <laughs> well, we can do some more singing. That's fun. <laughs> do you sing? So I do, I do, yeah. But um, I got a cold right now, so not not the right <laughs> not the right time. I mean, I, I want I just want to channel some sort of gruff voice. <clears throat> I wanted to um chat, uh, Jen before we get into your book, um, about your arrival in the United States, your return to America, because you obviously have a very rich background that you've, you've moved countries with Dell, with you by yourself and with Dell uh, so often, and you've really integrated so many different countries, including South Africa, Taiwan, China. And, um, and then you were in China um, working and as was Dell, and then all of a sudden you had to rush back to the United States. And, um, and I, I wanted you just to tell us a little bit that story with Michael um, and how it went down for you. It was really rough. Um, it was in 2017. Halloween was the first time when I noticed something was very different with Michael, uh, my second son. He was 13 at the time studying at the Shanghai American School. So he was very happy before, you know, studying. And he was ashen, pale, um, wasn't focusing. 
And then when he stopped eating and he started developing this very weird red rash on his legs, which now I know is called petechiae. Um, that's when I was like, this is really weird and we need to do something about this. And actually I was thinking it was something totally different. I thought he had rabies because mm -hmm. the summer before we were actually at my sister-in-law's at Dell's sister's house. And when we were there one morning, we woke up and there was a bat in the house. And I thought, oh my goodness, maybe the bat bit us. I don't know. And I ran and got a rabies vaccine, but Michael did not. Um, and so I was really worried that it was actually rabies. And so we went to the hospital. He said his ears were having trouble and they checked his ears. They said, everything's fine. You can go home. I said, no, 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 he's not going home. We are not going home. I think we need a blood test. And they kind of were like, oh yeah, right. Okay, okay. Well, we'll do a little finger prick and just check it out. They did the finger prick and they said, you know what? It came back quite abnormal. We're gonna need to do a full on blood panel. And I said, okay, let's do it. They did the full on blood panel. They called me into the office and like 50 miles an hour in Chinese, you know, he has acute leukemia and you need to get him to this, this hospital, which is like an hour outside of where we were outside of Shanghai right now. So I got him to the hospital, we get there and it's not like here where it's 24 hours emergency room. We get there and literally that's probably 15 minutes before closing at eight o'clock. We got there at 7.45 and they said, nope, sorry, we're closing, goodbye. I said, Very no, Swiss. no, no, I literally, yeah, I took an hour just to get here. Like, well, you can't say goodbye, please. I beg, I beg you, you know? And they said, nope, come back tomorrow, man, come back. So we got back into uh, the Uber and I basically didn't know what to do. And it was actually Dell's best friend, Rocky, who was our family doctor at the time, who said, I called him and said, what do I do? And he said, well, I, you know, maybe we should just go home. And he said, nope, you need to go back to the hospital that diagnosed him and get him in the emergency room there because he could go into total organ failure because he saw the numbers and they were off the scale, like, you know, if zero is a normal number, he was like 400,000 in his white blood cells. It was so crazy. I, I couldn't, I couldn't believe it. So we got back to the hospital. They ran all the tests again. They determined he had leukemia. They checked his organs and he was doing very badly. Um, he was basically on the verge of death. They called another hospital they, after calling all around all night they got him to another hospital and we got, we got into another hospital, but that wasn't easy because originally the head of oncology said to me, no, his numbers were not good. And I don't think that they wanted to actually admit him, but she finally said that if we get him into ICU, we'll be able to at least stabilize him if you want to fly him to the US. And I said, yep, that's what I want to do. So that's what we did. I spent like two sleepless nights, you know, I basically was like, like this in a chair. I was, you know, kind of slumped over, just trying to keep my eyes open, trying to get this sorted out. We had to make payment to the uh, international SOS to get him airlifted with a medical team and oxygen and uh, get embassy clearance because you can't just fly, you know, a sick kid 
uh, on a flight without proper clearance in China. And fortunately, this was before COVID. Mm -hmm. If it was during COVID, this would have been a really big deal. It would have been really hard. So we got him to Children's Hospital and uh, he got there in Philadelphia. That's where our family's from. And fortunately, they were ready for us. And we got in and uh, it was a long journey. And the doctors sit me down and they say, we need to prepare you because he's not doing well and he could definitely die. The chances are likely he's going to die, but we're going to do everything we can to save him. And I said, listen, I have just spent literally the last 48 hours trying to figure out how to get him here. And now that he's here, we're going to get him better. And I just kept you know, that positive attitude in my mind that we were going to get through this. And he immediately had to go up to ICU and they put a catheter in him and he was screaming bloody murder, screaming and crying. And it was just, you know, you just want to take the pain for your kids because it's so horrible. It's just that feeling. You just, um, it's a horrible, horrible gut-wrenching feeling. Mm. And then he had to swallow these horse pills because he had tumor lysis, which basically was that his kidneys were not able to process, you know, sort of his, all of the fluids were like clogged up in his system. And uh, it was horrible. He had to try to take the pills, which wasn't working. We We couldn't really crush the pills and then he couldn't take the, he couldn't swallow them and he was gagging. Then they tried to do it through a catheter and it was just horrible. That was probably the worst 24 hours of my life ever. I think I lost 10 pounds that night already. (laughs) And my hair was falling out like in clumps. I was so stressed. But you know, you're also, your, your body goes into this weird shock mode. So you just get through it, but it's very hard. You're in a state of shock the whole time. And somehow he got through it. Um, And I have to thank Dr. Stephen Hunger, who was the head of oncology and who, you know, led the whole team. The team was incredibly professional. They were very methodical and detailed and they had a plan of action. And then they got him right on the chemo and it was very, very hectic chemo platelets, chemo platelets and, and steroids and, and everything you can imagine. It was just dozens of medications that cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. And it was all very quick and very fast and furious. And, um, you know, after a week in the hospital, you start to digest sort of the magnitude of everything. But when you see his numbers slightly improve and his skin starts to look a little less pale and a little less jaundiced, you start to feel a glimmer of hope. And it was hard because I was all by myself going through this. Uh, Dell was still in China and it was very difficult to try to go through this, but I'm thankful for my family in Philadelphia that helped and were there to support me. And I guess you realize that you're a stronger person than you originally thought. And I just said, you know, that I have to be there 
and be strong for Michael and get through this. So I'm glad I was, I was his rock and he did get through it. Um, but you know, the battle continued because afterwards the longing effect of the steroids then affected his bones. And then from there, he went into uh, avascular necrosis, which basically was his bones were dying. Mm. So then before we knew it, he couldn't walk. One day he just couldn't walk at all. And um, we couldn't figure out what it was. And I again, again, had to advocate and strongly, you know, make sure that he gets an MRI and find out what was going on. And so we did, and that was what it was. So he had to have an operation, which was, um, what would they call, um, oh, what was it called? Anyway, they have to use like a centrifuge and um, stem cells actually to help rejuvenate the bones and rejuvenate growth in the bones. And that's what they did. And the operation was successful. And after almost nine months in a wheelchair um, and crutches, he was able to start walking and it was slow, but steady. And through his physical therapy, he started walking again and it was a miracle. And his legs are um, a little bit uneven, so he needs orthotics when he walks, but it's incredible the progress that he made and this summer, was the first time that he could actually participate in marching band and march. So it was a huge, huge leap um, for us. Story. Yeah. But it has been hard. Mm. I'm sure. And, and uh, the, the idea of how your hair falls out, these sort of very shock, stressful situations. I, I heard that a lot. So it doesn't help you. And you, you know, on top of that, you don't, you feel like your hair is coming out. It's everything's falling apart at some level. And, and yet you, you know, on the other side, you obviously have a job, you've got a presence everywhere and describe to me what, what's happened to you and how this journey has changed or maybe shaped the way you are today. Definitely it's made me a stronger person because it's those types of, you know, life threatening experiences that make you realize that that is just something that you can get through. And if I can get through this, I'm going to be able to get through anything. And I think that that in the end is, you know, what taught me these life lessons um, and they don't end here. I'm sure that more things are coming. And I've had some challenges since then till now, but I think that is probably one of the biggest challenges that I've ever had. And if I could get through that, I'll be able to get through other things. And when I moved to South Africa, I got there and the immigration counselor said, forget it, you're not gonna be able to um, get a job here if you think you're going to get something in broadcasting with a Chinese face and an American accent we just you know then nobody hires anybody like that and I wrote lots of emails I sent through my videos and nobody said anything I didn't get any responses and I started to believe wow maybe he's right but I thought to myself no I'm gonna keep trying and I did I just kept at it sometimes not right away you know you get a little discouraged so you have to take a little time and you pause and then you do it again and you realize that 
you just keep keep it up and keep persistent keep persisting and finally it's stuck and i was asked to come on to one of the biggest morning shows in south africa on 5fm um with kind of the Howard Stern, we could say, of South Africa with Gareth Cliff. And I was doing entertainment news with him. And, you know, that's the thing. In a sea of doubters, all you need is one person to believe in you. And that can basically launch your career. And he did it for me. And I thank him and his team profusely for everything that they've done. Because while people were making fun, and when I first got on air, Oh my God, the hate mail. But you know, that's what celebs go through. I wasn't a celeb. I was on the radio with him, but I had a different voice. And then they looked at my face. I had a different face. I had a different approach to things. You know, everything about me was different and people just couldn't really deal with it actually. And I guess I was a real target for people making fun of. And that was when Facebook sort of was just starting out. So it was still in its early stages where people were not actually, um, you know, sending all that hate, misinformation, vitriol like they do now on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. At that time, we just were kind of starting out. So it was very novel to people. And you were still like, oh, cool. I want to check out, you know, there was no element of puppy love in the way it was done. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like in the honeymoon phase of a relationship. So you're just feeling like, wow, this person is, you know, or Facebook is really great. And it was, it was amazing. I have to thank social media at that time for really connecting me with my fans and with people, you know, all over the world. And it was a great way to network, fantastic tool of networking. And I still use social media now to network, but, you know, it's gotten to be a quagmire basically of difficult obstacles where you got to worm your way through that maze to really get something out of it. Have you ever found yourself scrolling through financial news and wondering, how does any of this affect me? How can I read a major headline and truly understand what impact that has on not only my portfolio, but my life? Well, our goal on the podcast Inside the Street, hosted by Wall Street analyst Celeste Schifre Partners, is to provide public investors and young professionals with a deeper understanding of the mechanics that drive those major headlines. And what better way to dive into these mechanics and hosting Wall Street analysts themselves to discuss the newest trends in finance firsthand? Well, on our show, we bring you real perspectives from the front line. Hearing these analysts give commentary has made our listeners much more well-versed on the financial markets. This approach to discussion allows our listeners to engage in conversation with much more educated opinions and predictions. So be sure to check out our show, Inside the Street, wherever you find your podcasts. So your book, From Z to A-Lister, uh, it's a great fun read. It's very personal. Uh, I, I, the sort of subtitle that I want to give it, Jen, is that it, it's a book of values and civics. It's also, of course, a book about how to have a personal brand. But I very much feel this notion of, well, actually part of getting a good personal brand is being a good person. And, and, I, and the story that I also have in my head about the area of entertainment in general is that maybe good stands out very quickly because it's not always a good environment. Tell me what you think about that as a description of the book. Yeah, thank you. I, I do think that one aspect of personal branding that I bring in 
that may be a little bit different from others is that I bring in the whole part of Asian graces. Mm-hmm. And I do think that that is a very important aspect of why I've been successful and why I've been able to keep very long lasting relationships, whether it's in business or just personal for a long time. And it has a lot to do with sort of those traditional values and beliefs. It doesn't mean that in Western society that Westerners don't have the same beliefs, they do. Um, But I do think that growing up in a culture with filial piety, basically respecting your elders and respecting those who have more experiencing, have more experience than you and just being able to draw from them and learn from them is very important listening to others. Mm. I do sometimes feel that it's very discordant in Western society where people are always trying to talk over each other and they're arguing and they're always saying, I'm right, I want my freedom, I'm right, I'm this, I'm that. It's not about I'm, it's about all of us and it's about the greater good of us. And if you see even during the COVID pandemic in Asian society, they don't complain about masks. They wear masks to help others, to protect everybody else. And when they have a cold, they put a mask on so that they don't transmit it to other people. And it's that kind of way of thinking that I think is something that has made me successful. Now, I'm not telling people that they have to be that way. I think that, um, but I found it to be useful. And whether it's writing a handwritten note to people Mm. to thank them, little things to show your appreciation and gratitude, giving a little gift, not a high value expensive gift where the person that you've given it to feels like, oh my gosh, wait, do I have to now give you a gift? Oftentimes I'll give someone a little something or a little memento and they'll say, wait, you didn't have to give me that. It's not my birthday today, but I wanted to. It's just a little token of appreciation and gratitude. Sometimes it can be something maybe personal or like my book. I could maybe give a copy of my book to them. Maybe just a little souvenir. Maybe it's something that uh, I felt that this person and myself had a connection and I was able to see a newspaper article or something that you know, might be interesting to them or photograph. In fact, I do that often where I'll make little mugs of photos of times and experiences that we've had with people. In fact, those have been the best gifts of all. Yeah, so I know I you, write, you write, I, you write, I, I you write a lot about your, you, you do a lot of photographs and I love that idea of taking advantage of all your photographs and, and giving, making them materially available because otherwise they're sort of lost in a sea of, you know, a million clicks that are stored up in all of our drives. That's right. And printing out the photograph, writing a little handwritten note. Maybe it's a photograph of myself and that person that I want to say thank you. Um, we often overlook people who have helped us along the way and to always remember where you've come from. So, you know, that's, I guess, what I'm talking about with the Asian graces. The other thing is to also know when to pull back. It doesn't mean that you're weak. Sometimes it's important to just listen and stop talking over someone else and stop always 
you know, insisting that you're right. Listen to what they have to say. And I'm even talking about, you know, whether it's on the political spectrum or on the personal spectrum. Yeah, I don't agree with you on certain political views, but I want to listen to your take on it. We got to listen to each other more. And one really nice thing about the Asian culture is that we do learn how to step back a little bit and listen and try to understand and try to negotiate to make a resolution. Okay, well, yeah, I have to give a little, you have to give a little, but we are able to come to a resolution or a sort of a common goal where, okay, we didn't get to do everything that we wanted, but we were able to come to some kind of understanding and agreement. And so that is where, you know, I think that that's something that I really like. I like actually the reservedness of the Asian culture. Of course, it's not the same now. And I'm not talking about everybody. You can't really stereotype about the goody goody Asian girl that sits in the corner and never says anything and never does anything. And she's, you know, she never does anything bad or nasty or, you know, that kind of thing. No, I'm, I'm, I'm saying that in general, a lot of the sort of traditional Asian upbringing does have us, you know, be more reserved, or at least think carefully before acting, trying not to be impetuous. And something about the Chinese Lunar New Year uh, for this entire year of the tiger, this is the water tiger, where you actually need to be very careful about being too impetuous. Mm -hmm. So while the water tiger, and while the tiger is a very strong animal, it's a fierce animal, you know, you can be a strong person with a lot of willpower, but you have to also learn how to hold back a little bit and listen to the other side and understand where that person is coming from and try to find some type of agreement. And that's where the water tiger comes in place because water is a weaker element. So this year, which is the water tiger is actually, it comes one in every 60 years is sort of the weaker element of the tiger. And that's where we really need to be careful that we don't get ahead of ourselves. And that's where I feel that 2022 seems to be leaping into. It started off on a really bad foot, you know, January and February isn't looking much better. So I'm really hoping that somehow we're going to start to turn this around. How are we gonna be able to turn around all the hate and the vitriol that's happening? Misinformation is going to be around us all the time, but we're going to have to learn how to filter it out. And you're going to have to learn how to decide what is right for yourself. So, I mean, that I guess is a difficult thing. It's a very, very difficult, you know, space to navigate in. Makes me think but we're going to a, have to live with all of this. It makes me think of your tiger mom, that reference you have in the book. <laughs> Um, I think she's a Yale um, graduate as well. But, she um, is, Amy Tan. There you go, exactly. Uh, or she's a teacher there or something like that. Um, one of the things that uh, in your book, you, you, are, you, you talk this very much about going from Z to A-lister and, and learning to get through the ropes, keeping humility and these values you have. 
you also seem to have a, a pretty strong idea of what is your personal brand, as in you can describe it down to the, the shoes you might wear or the hat you might wear in particular. What I would like you to describe, because one of the things that's often difficult is for people to actually understand who they are. Uh, and then to craft a personal brand that has integrity to that person. Because if you don't even know who you are in the first place, then how do you have an authentic personal brand? It's, it's just a mirage based on another mirage. Tell us the, about the process that you went through, Jen, in crafting the personal brand that you've now lived into and moved into in such a, an authentic and full way. Well, the process is not an easy one. And I think that's the problem is people start to think that, you know, you just got to do this in a couple of days and then I've got a personal brand going. No, this is a personal brand that evolves over time and it is cultivated over time. It takes a lot of time and it is encompassing of all of your life experiences. Most important, you want to be genuine, which is something that you always talk about, Minter, and um I love that because that is number one, is that you have to be genuine and you have to have a passion about what you're experiencing and what you're sharing with people. Because that's the only way that people are going to trust you and feel that you're authentic in what you do. But you want to be the best in that field. You want to have a niche and you want to find that niche. So that takes a long time to do. Mm. Um, I guess for me, the biggest challenge was that I had to move countries so much mm. because Dell was an expatriate and he was basically, you know, based everywhere. So I was moving from, you know, America to Taiwan, to Hong Kong, to Thailand, to Hong Kong, to uh, China, where am I? I can't even remember myself, to South Africa and then China, you know, so many different cultures and needs so I had to kind of reinvent myself so many times to adapt to each market and find out, you know, where they had a need where I could sort of fit in. But I guess where I tried to, you know, work on my personal brand in television, in marketing and how to use social media, how to network and how to really refine those skills. So yes, dressing the part was something that basically applied all across the board, which we really need to take seriously. And I think people do, um, but sometimes on the Zoom calls during COVID, people were getting very lax, you know, walking around in their pajamas. And every time you think, well, of course, people actually know what they're doing. Well, then you hear about someone uh, who does very inappropriate things on a corporate Zoom call, and you just can't Indeed. believe it. Some of the people that you would least expect to ruin their personal brand have. So it's a very long process, and it's a process that has to evolve, especially if you are continually doing things in different countries and different environments. And I think COVID was really a, a pivotal point for a lot of people where you realize what is so important to me in life. Uh, my children, my family, making sure that I myself am happy, my personal health, happiness and well-being. You know, am I going to keep going and working three jobs and driving myself nuts and dealing with people that I can't stand talking to? 
So that's why there's the great resignation that's going on right now. Mm. But anyway, harping back to, you know, personal branding, I guess the process, like I said, it's a long one. But mainly you have to decide what you are best in. Um, and there's never been a more important time right now to really hone in on what is your personal brand, what you feel you are best at and write down, you know, on a list, handwrite it, not on the computer, but actually handwrite it and think about it. A list of five things that you're really, really good at. And then try to hone in on those top two, maybe, and then maybe even the top one. Um, and then from a business perspective, you know, ask some people around you what they feel you really rock at, what they have in mind for you, or when they see you, what are the three top adjectives that they think about, you know, reliable, authentic, and, you know, the expert in your field. So I guess those are the sort of tenets of where personal branding comes in and then being able to maintain that. Mm. So it's social media, it's networking. We're doing less parties now, but, you know, we're still doing some in-person events, really take advantage of that. And there's a whole method to that, you know, where I like to use my photographs as a way of sort of connecting with people. And I take photos, not only just so that I remember who it is that I've met, because you meet so many people in a day, but also then I can send them a little thank you and with a photo. And then they remember what I look like and they were like, oh yeah, yeah, sure. Jen Sue, I remember her and that kind of thing. And it really helps. People love that. And um, also speaking engagements, you know, getting a chance to get out there, um, getting on podcasts, you know, and being able to discuss in more detail about personal branding or, you know, anything really that is important to you um, and working on finding out, you know, I guess more just discovering yourself. So it's a process and it takes years. One of the things I enjoyed in your book, Jen, was um, I, I would I would characterize it as, as rather gritty, granular details about how to, for example, network and the types of suggestions, and recommendations you do, the follow-ups, the handwritten notes, the photographs that allow you to know who's who's who and all that, details about people. That was brilliant, the networking section. I also had to smile. I kind of rolled over laughing um, when you described how you ha have tape on your bosoms and um, the bra goes there <laughs> and all that kind of stuff. Wow. Uh, yeah, stuff I, I, I'm not familiar with. <clears throat> anyway, a lot of fun and, and you really worthwhile. You don't tape your bosoms? <laughs> not, not yet. <laughs> Mine haven't sagged yet, um, but that's surely going to come. Um, one of the things, Jen, I wanted to talk about was uh, your presence on social because a lot of people who might even have... Uh, some high position might have profiles everywhere. You have a, a burgeoning presence on so many different social media, Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, and, and YouTube, of course. So I was wondering, you know, to the extent that you have a, a strong identity, to what extent do you play those out differently or not in each of the different ones? Do you have like a, well, this is for Twitter, this is for Instagram, or do you just sort of use, you know, the assets and spread them around uh, across all of them? So I do a little bit of both. I do post across platforms, sometimes the same 
video, but I use the word, the wording is different. The hashtags are different. So depending on my audience, obviously TikTok and LinkedIn are completely different markets and different audiences. So I will approach it in a very different way. Um, I do check the trending hashtags and I try to get in on them. So with Twitter, a lot of times I do check what the trends are. And then I try to get in on those trends as well and weigh in a little bit, um, but weigh in, you know, in a more positive way. I think if you're going to go and attack someone, you really need to think carefully about what you're doing. Um, and unfortunately it has, it's cancel culture. So we do have to be really careful about what we say and do, but there still is a way of, you know, getting around this and being creative. So yes, I do approach social media differently for every platform. Um, Instagram, I really care a lot about high quality images, you know, really sharp, really good, and really interesting content. Um, I also post a lot in stories, Facebook stories, Instagram stories. And stories are great because you can just kind of, if you want to just take a photo of your coffee cup, something silly like that, or, you know, something that's maybe something that's not post worthy, so to say, you just put it on a story. Or um, I like to add music. Yeah, I like to, you know, do something fun. Uh, but overall, it's been really a great way of connecting with people. Um, social media also, though, has, you know, exposed me to all kinds of elements. So I get a lot of hate, criticism, too. Not as much as I used to when I was in South Africa and I was on television every day. You know, there was a lot of hate there. Um, there were really mean things. And, you know, so when celebs talk about all the mean uh, comments that they get and you can see it, you just go on Kim Kardashian's feed you know, oh my gosh, the things that they say about her. Look, I mean, she's not your best friend, maybe, but she may not be, you know, someone that you aspire to be, but you have to say, wow, she has to take it. And she does. She's a strong person. And mm -hmm. there are some really hateful, horrible comments on there, but she just lets it go. You have to let it ride off you. And you have to realize that if you're going to further your personal brand, in whatever you do, if you excel in what you do, you're going to be talked about. And most people are going to be jealous. And most people aren't going to believe what you say. And most people are just going to plain old shut you down. It's sort but, of more because about that's their, the culture that's we've become. Yeah, it's, it's sort of their problem. One of the quotes you have in the book says something along the lines of, and I'm paraphrasing, um, be nice to people, all people, even people who say nasty things to you, uh, not because they're not nasty, but because you're nice. Yes. That's what I've always ascribed to. Um, I think I am, you know, I'm a very empathetic person and I really think about the other person and try to, yeah, try to put myself in their shoes. Um, sometimes we really vehemently disagree with each other and they also want to criticize me and that's okay. I think, you know, I will take feedback if it's constructive and I can learn from that. And that's also part of personal branding, being able to constructively, you know, take feedback. I think uh, videoing yourself is really important. Listening to your voice and how you come across. All of those things 
are really important. And I think the best thing actually is to have someone film you when you don't know, when you <laughs> don't know it and uh, see the things that you do. I mean, people often have this really weird body language or they've got what they call nonverbal communication where your eyes or what you do, I mean, Twitch I'm not going to name names, but someone in my family will just, every time, I don't know why she does it. I know she loves me, but she just looks at me up and down. Like she's checking in. Not, not like the guys do. The guys are also looking you up and down, mostly, you know, there, <laughs> <laughs> but she was looking at me up and down all the time and kind of with like, like a smirk on her face, like kind of just like, Oh God, I don't know why, but it comes off like that. So these are the kinds of things that you might say to yourself, wait, I'm not like that. I'm not thinking those things, but you look like that. And so it's really good for someone to secretly film you. Yeah. And, like, like you say, you take a um, you photograph of a you. lot. You mentioned take, have someone take a photograph of you and or take photographs of you before you go on set to 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 yes. see if the dress falls well or, or you know the is the bottom you know well prepared presented and all that everything part of you absolutely like before we do any Zoom meeting or I do any Zoom meeting with for instance the Philadelphia Film Society I'm on the board of directors we have a lot of board meetings I check my backgrounds all the time you know just make sure there's not there's no dirty laundry in the background or, you know, anything like that. Obviously there's not going to be, um, but I care about everything, all the little details, even for a call where, you know, some people are just, you know, they don't really care about it, but I, I do. And I think that that's your, your personal brand is with you 24 seven and you need to always be mindful of it. Um, and you need to be strong and you need to believe very much in yourself first you have to be a hundred percent sold on what you are doing before you can sell it to anybody else and, also and being able you, to bring in your life experiences is really the best way to to go about it you also mentioned having uh, someone who believes in you some mentor or someone who gives you that extra pep talk that also is helpful I want to finish, Jen, just on one other topic, which is because you have so many, we could probably go on for hours, but this is no Joe Rogan show. Um, you're, <laughs> the fact that you spent so much time in journalism and, and media in general. Uh, so obviously you've got the news side, the entertainment side, the fact that you're on the other side of the camera also, but to, to your viewing today, what, what would you say, what are the words that come to mind when you talk about the future of media? What does what does the future of media look like and what, what do we need to do to make media a better force in, in our culture these days? Well, obviously video is the most important thing. It's not really uh, the written word or the blogs. Yes, they're there, but you know, really how we communicate by, by seeing each other and feeling that. And it's difficult. I think COVID was the prime example of how we had to learn to pivot and be able to convey warmth through a Skype call or through a Zoom call where we didn't really have to do that before because we had the luxury of seeing people in person. Now we have to communicate a lot in this format. So I think the future of media you know, is going towards that. We also have to look at AI and artificial intelligence. 
maybe we'll be replaced by robots, who knows, because we might just kind of end up killing each other <laughs> with all of our hateful comments and vitriol. Um, no, but in, in all seriousness, I do get very worried about mental health and how it is affecting everyone across the board, but particularly the younger generation. Those are the ones who are gonna be our future media stars and how it is affecting people. I hope that we still continue with some of the traditional forms of media. And I hope that we continue to um, still write handwritten notes. I hope that you know, news gathering and, and all of that continues to be sort of the way it, it has been all along. But yes, we're really expanding on a digital platform in leaps and bounds and things are happening so fast. I guess the most important thing is that we have to really act quickly. Everything needs to be reacted to fast, but also with thought. So that I think is the biggest challenge, you know, where media is going now and just, you know, technology in everything. Everything is moving so quickly. I just hope that wherever media is going to be leading to us in the future, that we're able to still hold and retain some of those traditional elements. Um, I don't know, you know, it's hard to say. I mean, no more VHS tapes. <laughs> no, whereas we were talking yeah, about- No more cassettes. Yeah, right. We were talking I mean, at the beginning about a return to some older values. Not all the values that are old are out of date. And right. that's to say that we, we can't throw out the baby with the bathwater kind of feeling to all the conservative values. So maybe the pendulum. And what do you think about the, you know, sort of where media is heading to in the future? Well, my my general feeling is that the the issue has been the economic model and that the public who pays for media uh, needs to step up their game and be more critical of what they're reading, um, more critical about which ones they are spending money, if it's their, not their eyeballs or their money. Uh, to support the ones that provide proper investigative journalism. But today, so much of the journalism has to sort of create an opinion about behind which it'll read and edit everything in order to get the reading, because that's how the economic model is working. So I feel that's a right. Well, a that's problem. what's driving, you know, the eyeballs. That's what's driving the money. And unfortunately, we know from Facebook uh, what has been going on with all of that. And that is unfortunately what has been happening. And there has to be some way where we can start to regulate. You know, congressional regulation could take forever. Um, and, but I guess it is also a mindset in ourselves that somehow we have to learn how to take the best of what, you know, social media and media is giving us yet also be able to discern and be able to regulate it ourselves. I, I don't know really what the answer is. It's a, it's kind of a slippery slope that we're into right now. Well, I have um, an initiative that I started earlier this year, which is about trying to propose, promote, promulgate more meaningful conversation in which one of the things that we need to learn how to do is to be able to rebut and to argue, debate, but civilly, which uh, reposes also on having 
facts that are objectively understandable as opposed to my truth. And, and uh, when you express an opinion, back it up and do it in a way that's uh, listenable to the other's ears. You don't need to be rude in the way you express yourself. And then also get off your high horse and at times admit that what you said, Jen, hey, that's really lovely. I really appreciated what you said here. That was interesting. And, and be specific about what you appreciate in the opponent's perspective. If you can be generous at that level, give before you take, then they might reciprocate. Yes. You can formalize that, but at least give that as an idea. And then hopefully we can generate more people who are able to have argument, but in a civil manner, because it's not about just a, a Pollyannish, oh, everything's great and we love everybody. That's, that's a silly idea. And I think it's part of our problem is that we were creating a culture where every word that can be triggered is a bad word. So that you end up saying nothing to anybody. And, and there we're not gonna progress. We'll just retrench into our little ecosystem and bubbles. So we have to know how to bridge into harder conversations. And so I think that's where some media needs to be better at, which is allow for other sides, but not in a deprecating or, you know, well, the other side came over. Find ways to right. have forums for solid, meaningful conversations. That's what I think. Excellent. Very well said. Very well said. Jen. I want you to give me your three top tips for personal branding as well. Well, um, let's say personal branding. First is um, you think you know yourself, but think again. That is to say that it's much harder to actually come up with who you are. And in that, uh, look at what you're bad at, what, what you're less good at and understand your weaknesses. Second is try to understand what you're trying to achieve. So be strategic in the way you go about it because you it's very easy to be fallen to the black hole of social media and try to cover everything all the time. What are you trying to achieve with your presence online? And the third is um, be generous with others. And, and, and I think that as a, maybe like to, towards a, you know, who you are kind of thing, but if you can be outreaching and be useful in other platforms, that will help you drive your platform. So in, if you have an expertise, it's not just about, well, I'm expert in this and listen to me. Go into forums that have, uh, are relevant, participate in, not in a, well, I'm great, look at me, but be constructive, add value into those forums. And they, that will help over time, karmically, for people to come back and say, oh, well, this is the chap who uh, participated. He gave away some good value or she gave in some really interesting tips in here. And then you become a reference almost just by osmosis as opposed to pontificating from your stand. Um, and that, those are my three tips there, Jen. Excellent. That was really well said. I love it. Off the cuff. All right, Jen, we um, have other <laughs> things to do in life, um, but um, it's been a true joy to hear your, your voice, your energy, your story, uh, your lovely Thank family. You. Send big hugs to everybody. And we Thank shall you, stay in touch. Excellent. Thank you so much. Thanks for having listened to this episode of the Minter Dialogue podcast. If you like the show and would like to support me, please consider a donation on patreon.com forward slash Dial. You can also subscribe on your favorite podcast service. And as ever, rating and reviews are the real currency for podcasts. You'll find the show notes 
with over 2,000 and more blog posts on Mintadar.com. Check out my documentary film and four books, including my last one, You Lead, How Being Yourself Makes You a Better Leader. And to finish, here's a song I wrote with Stephanie Singer, A Convinced Man.
The Jim Stroud Podcast explores the discoveries and trends forming the future of our lives. Brain-to-brain communication, robot bosses, microchip implants for workers, and artificial intelligence replacing human workers are all happening now. If you want to know what's happening next, subscribe now to The Jim Stroud Podcast.